Welcome. I'm Eric Grun, and you're listening to These Are the Words. And in this season, I will be reading named The Gurus, The Young Man, and Elder Paisios. So I'm going to look up uh, some nice music for us to hear. Some background music, let's see. Let's see. This is the Hymn of the Cherubim, or the Hymn of the Cherubim, Cherubim, the Cherubim, which is a, an order of angels, by Piotr, Piotr, Peter, Iliots, Ilyich Pietr Ilyich Tchaikovsky Tchaikovsky Pietr Ilyich Tchaikovsky <laughs> It's my grandfather's favorite composer of classical music This is the hymn of the cherubim, very beautiful work of music and genius. So we'll leave this, hopefully there aren't too many commercials. Okay. Kabirina, a yogi's heartthrob. In the ashram, there was a large building that served as a printing house devoted exclusively to printing Guru Satyananda's books. Okay, give me one second. I'm going to, at the same time...
Let's see. I'm going to try to do a video at the same time. <laughs> Let's see if... Uh, Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's see if it okay. All right. <clears throat> Kiberina a yogi's heartthrob. <clears throat> Cover Kabirina a Yogi's Heartthrob. This is the book called The Gurus, the Young Man, and Elder Paisios. In the ashram, there was a large building that served as a printing house devoted, devoted exclusively to printing Guru Satyananda's books. It was run by an advanced Indian Swami around 30 years old, whose siddhis or accomplishments, <clears throat> whose siddhis were beginning to stir. The other inhabitants of the ashram were truly in awe of this Swami whom they said had awakened the serpent of Kundalini. Kundalini means the coiled one. Awakened the serpent of Kundalini. The printing house where he worked was full of mandalas. Signs with strange clusters of geometric patterns painted on them in vibrant colors that supposedly conveyed certain messages to the subconscious <clears throat> as Jung postulated in his theory of archetypes and the collective unconscious. These striking mandalas had been drawn by an American Swami living in the ashram. Under the direction of an Indian Swami who had seen them in his dreams, under the direction of an Indian Swami who had seen them in his dreams, I worked in this printing house for several days, folding pages that were to be bound as a book. Once, while I was working, I suddenly felt an irresistible desire to draw, which I automatically obeyed by sketching some strange but impressive geometrical patterns. This drawing didn't require any special effort on my part or even the use of my imagination. It was as though I were mechanically obeying a suggestion arising from or implanted in my soul. When the person working with me insisted that I, sh that I show them to the Indian Swami in charge, 
I let him take a look at them. He encouraged me in a friendly manner, saying, Seven leaves. Seven is a very spiritual number. For quite a few days, I continued to be in this strange state, enjoying drawing the patterns on paper or on the ground, and showing them to the Swami. Several times I even formed such patterns using mounds of earth. I had had precisely the same feeling when I first met Niranjan, the president of ashram, in his office. The president of the ashram. While I was working in the printing press, while I was working in the printing house, I laid eyes for the first time on an Indian woman named Kabarina, a Swami who was slightly younger than I was. We needed to talk about some issue concerning our work. <clears throat> As we looked into each other's eyes, we unexpectedly began to smile. Excited at our pleasure in getting to know each other. There was something erotic about the sudden thrill we felt, standing there in the middle of the printing shop with everyone else seated on the floor around us. We felt so gay and happy that we almost started laughing. We made the moment last as long as we could. Then we went back to our respective tasks. Over the next few days, the Swami in charge of the printing house started acting hostile towards me. Once, when we were carrying some boxes with papers, he sharply rebuked me for being careless. I tried to make light of this remark so that we could just forget about it. I considered his comments to be unfair and, after all, didn't really consider him to be my boss. But he looked at me with a threatening glance and spoke to me even more harshly, giving the impression that he was able to hurt me if he wanted to. I was about to reply to him when the American Swami who was carrying boxes with me, turned towards me with an alarmed look on her face and whispered, Shh! Her fear startled me so much that I immediately, immediately obeyed her. The girl and I had become friends, so I accepted her advice when she suggested that I go and work elsewhere. When I later asked her why she had been so scared, she said that I was in great danger because he was a very powerful yogi. I was much more careful for the next few days 
and I came to the conclusion that this powerful yogi was jealous because he wanted to have some sort of romantic relationship with Kabarina, or partnership with her. Of course, there was not supposed to be any sexual activity in the ashram, and for this reason the men and women lived separately in different buildings. But, when, uh, but what went on in secret was another matter. One day I didn't go to work as I should have, but instead rested in my room, and I heard two women swamis outside laughing and talking quietly. One of them mentioned that a certain male swami tried to convince her to have sexual relations with him, but because she didn't care for him, she shunned him. I mentioned this to Tony, a British yoga teacher with whom I spent a good deal of time, and he didn't dismiss the possibility of something of that sort taking place. In fact, as I was scandalized to learn, he was interested in finding a way to take part in such activities. He laughed and told me that he strove to get his full his fill of sexual experiences so that the desire would go away. Although the yogis publicly regarded this path of having a lot of sexual relations in order to make oneself bored with them as inferior, Tony more or less supported the idea and followed it in his life. This was diametrically opposed to what I had read about in the yogis' books. But then, Tony was a yoga teacher, whereas I was a mere student. He had known yogis up close for years. He had known yogis up close for years, while I had only known them from a distance for a short while. Years later, as I was preparing to write this book, I read one of the Guru's newer books, which completely settled this issue in my mind. The Guru publicly admitted that there is a path on the left, whereby one can reach a state of ultimate awareness by means of an ecstatic experience in an orgy. But he also noted that the yogis don't broadcast the existence of this path. They keep it hidden. He wrote, because people must be mature in order to accept it. Apparently, the time was then ripe for them to speak openly about what was kept secret only a few years back. It made me wonder what other secrets were, were being hidden from us until he had, until until we had matured. Tony the English Yoga Teacher Tony was an intelligent and physically fit Englishman of medium stature. He was the son of a minister in the, Ang in the Anglican Church and had studied mathematics at a university in England. At some point, he had become involved in yoga, Kriya Yoga to be precise, and had abandoned his home to become a follower of Guru Satyananda. 
It was learned about the Tantras and the Hindu idea of the spiritual use of sex. At first, he eked out a living by working as a yoga teacher in seminars for beginners. Afterwards, he decided to travel around the world and then spend the rest of his life in one of the guru's ashrams. One day, when we were having a conversation about the Bhagavad Gita, he asked, Did you know that Christ was an eminent yogi? I responded, I responded, I responded, So Christ was a yogi and Shiva is God? He didn't answer. He had a preference. <laughs> he had a preference for Shiva, the god of destruction, according to Hinduism, an image of whom hung in his room over the god of the distorted Anglican Christianity he had rejected. He used to smoke charas and had taken LSD several times and he confessed to me that he secretly continued to smoke in the ashram, especially before the satsang, so that he would have more vibrant experiences. Indeed, I was caught, I once caught him red-handed getting high with two other members of the ashram. He admired Niranjan, but he put down the Indians who weren't swamis and still had all the heirs of the ruling class of the British Empire. He gave me the Bhagavad Gita and some of the Guru's books in English, and we traveled together for a few days. My Second Encounter with Babaji at Allahabad All the yogis in Satyananda's ashram were impressed by the fact that I had met Babaji and visited his ashram in the, in the Himalayas. They would come and ask me They would come and ask me various questions, inquiring, for example, into the ashram's precise location, a difficult question to answer. It was quite apparent that they wanted to meet this living legend, and that their estimation of me had increased because I had. Even Naranjan, the president of the ashram, admired him and was curious. Babaji, he told me, is at the highest level, expressing what seemed to be a universal opinion in the ashram. Now, I knew that the next month Babaji would be coming for a few days to Allahabad. One of the many sacred, one of the many sacred cities of the Indians in the Ganges Basin. When I asked permission to go and see him, they were amazed that I intended to go to that particular city on those particular days. They considered me to be lucky because the religious because the religious feast that would be occurring in that city takes place only once every 12 years. 
Moreover, important yogis and impressive gurus from all over India would be gathered there for three days to worship the Hindu pantheon, and I would have the great honor and blessing to be present with them and to be helped by the energy and atmosphere that they would generate. Niranjan considered the fact that an uninitiated foreigner knew the place and day of this event to be an encouraging omen, so he gave me permission to travel. That is to say, he gave me back my passport and money, which, when I first arrived, the ashram had required me to surrender. So I boarded a train, and after a long journey, I arrived at the classical Indian city of Allahabad, with its multi-story wooden houses, patched together with mud, and an occasional more modern structure held together by cement. It was like a village laced with small, narrow roads, but of enormous dimensions, shrouded in darkness and overflowing with filth. Standing at the edge of this chaotic city, I realized that there were no large thoroughfares I could use to keep my bearings in its labyrinth, in its labyrinth, and no maps to chart my way. Merely entering would surely entail getting lost. I went straight to the hotel next to the station and booked a single room in order to rest, and I decided to look for Babaji on the following day. Although the probability of my finding him was very low, I believed that he would arrange everything as he had before. After my afternoon meal, throwing caution to the wind, I decided to explore the city. It grew dark as I wandered through the pedestrian-filled streets. From time to time, I would enter a back alley where I would listen to the din of life in overpopulated and poverty-stricken India. Considering the amount of human and animal waste and dirty water in the streets, I don't believe the city had a modern sewage system. I was wearing a pair of boots, which made it a bit less repugnant to walk through the cities. The Indians, however, walked barefoot. Although electric streetlights were rare, there were fires lit here, and there were there where the Indians would and it was there where the Indians would warm themselves and gather for conversations that would last for hours. Many didn't many did not have anywhere else to go. Many didn't have anywhere else to go. So they would also sleep there next to the sidewalk. This night, however, was different than normal. There were also present yogis. There were also present yogis who had chosen various places to loiter. One yogi might settle for a small opening between the buildings while another might camp out in a yard or in some park. Still another might take up his lodgings under a tree. People would gather around them, sitting down and taking off their shoes in order to spend the night chanting the entire Bhagavad Gita. Some yogis would play small instruments to accompany the singing. The most pious sat near the yogis, 
The others would stand at a distance for a while and then leave. I walked around taking it all in. Eventually, I attached myself to an ever-increasing group surrounding a thin guru who was dressed in an orange robe and seated in the lotus position with a book open in front of him. His hair and beard were snow white and his face was calm and beautiful. He sang with a melodic voice while with his right hand he played a small instrument with a tiny keyboard. He was a model yogi just the way I imagined a yogi should be. And I suppose it was for this reason that I was attracted to him and decided to observe him. Suddenly, I became aware that I was jerking my head back and forth, as though I were trying to rid myself of something that had sat on top of it. I rubbed my eyes vigorously in order to awake from, awake from this condition. In the meantime, the crowd became alarmed and recoiled from it, from me in fear. In the meantime, the crowd became alarmed and recoiled from me in fear, and many even fled the group. I felt sure it was the work of the yogi. Nevertheless, when I came to, I looked at him indifferently and thought, "You huckster, you're nothing to write home about." To me, he seemed to be showing off. I blamed him, but I wasn't angry with him. I had lost all interest in him and his powers. <clears throat> Shortly thereafter, I returned to my hotel and went to sleep. When I later reflected on what had taken place, I realized that I couldn't tell when I had, when I had lost control over my senses. I didn't know when this state had begun, how long it lasted, or what I did while I was in it. I only remembered trying to get out of it. In retrospect, I saw, I saw that the hypnotic trance might have ended immediately after it began. Perhaps the yogi had attempted to control me through hypnotism, but failed. Or on the other hand, it might have gone on for an indeterminate uh, an indeterminable period of time, and only at the end, when he released me, had I begun to awaken and react. In any event, the crux of the matter is that he secretly and suddenly encroached on my person without my consent, showing no respect for me, in fact, using me. It's worth noting how the people recoiled in fear. Experience obviously warned, warned them that something evil and fearful was taking place. If they had experienced positive results from such phenomena, they wouldn't have fled. On the contrary, they would have happily drawn near. But I suppose that I had become used to such things, even if I didn't know the mechanism by which they took place, and instead of being afraid, I simply brushed him aside. Nevertheless, I was curious. Although I hadn't been able to see, hear, or touch anything, I had felt something encircling my head, touching it, and letting go. 
at the time, I couldn't discern whether it was an energy or a spirit. But it felt like a vexing and undesirable little cloud lingering and bringing with it a hostile, foul, and utterly repulsive evil presence. Later, I would come to believe that the yogi with a beautiful face had sent an evil spirit in my direction. The next day I arose early in order to find the guru of gurus. I had an address, I had an address on a piece of paper, but in the chaos that surrounded me, it was meaningless. Even for an Indian in my position, the problem would have been insurmountable. Nevertheless, I remained calm because I believed that the one who had guided me to that peak in the Himalayas would somehow intervene and draw me again to himself. Eventually, I asked someone who examined the address and told me that I had to go to the other side of the tracks since beneath the address were printed the words civil lines. When I reached the station and crossed the train tracks, I realized just what it meant to live in the civil lines neighborhood. I was now in another world with large parks, expansive boulevards, and wide avenues lined with aristocratic European-style homes surrounded by large yards and gardens. Everything was impeccably clean. So unlike the city I had entered the night before, there were so few people out that the roads were nearly empty, except for a few cars, which seemed minute against the backdrop against the backdrop of the vast thoroughfares. Apparently, the railway line, which could be crossed only at a few elevated bridges, also served as a barrier that divided the Indian city from the area where the English colonizers had built their homes and parks. The economic inequality between these two worlds was enormous. Hunger, wretched conditions, and the struggle for survival marked life on one side of the tracks, while extravagance and luxury were the traits of life on the other side. Of course, the English colonial masters, the aristocracy of an earlier age, no longer lived in these homes. The new Indian aristocracy had taken their place. For those caught in the trap of wretchedness and poverty, there was no way out. This also included some of the Western Europeans and Americans who had come under the influence of various writers who cultivated the myth of India. Such Westerners were usually involved with drugs or became drug users in India, and as soon as their money ran out, they would sell their passport in order to buy more narcotics. Their embassies would help them in the their embassies would help them in the beginning, but then 
when they would use that help to acquire more drugs, they would be driven away. And so these abject youth would sleep on the pavement in a dark despair that nearly drove them mad. The smooth talkers who deceived them with pleasant-sounding lies, enticing myths, and empty promises surely, surely share the blame for their predicament. Herman Hess, for example, surely bears some responsibility for the droves of young people that he goaded to India with his books. If someone were to have stolen my wallet, which contained my money, passport, and return ticket, I would automatically have found myself in such tragic straits. And such a scenario was not implausible. My wallet contained the equivalent of two years' pay for a working Indian. Surely there were those who would risk committing a crime in order to lay their hands on it. Of course, that was a frightening scenario that I tried to avoid dwelling on. In any event, I found myself strolling through civilized Allahabad, observing its residents and catching a glimpse of their little palaces, including the home of former Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. Along the way, I asked about the address, but no one had ever heard of it. I sat on a bench, made an oath that I would have that I would give 10 rupees in almsgiving to a pure Indian and asked Babaji to help me. At that point, a young man around 20 years of age passed by me riding his bicycle. I made a motion for him to stop in order to show him the address and, like other Indians I had met, he appeared to be flattered to speak with a Westerner. He told me that he knew the owner of the house a very wealthy book distributor and publisher with business connections abroad. The residence was about two miles away, and he offered to take me there on his bicycle. So I took him up on his offer, and in a short while, we were in front of a mansion with a, a fairly large number of people milling about outside, and from the sound of it, an even larger crowd within. My companion was hesitant about entering the inner courtyard, presumably because he was of a lower caste, because he was of a lower caste than the house's than the house's owner, who was a Brahmin. But I was in a hurry and rushed in. The courtyard enclosed a formal garden, a formal garden complete with a sizable lawn, statues, and a fountain. It was a lovely day. The sun was shining and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. The disciples of Babaji's inner circle, all Westerners in their thirties, were sitting on the grass by themselves. They were his permanent entourage and no one dared draw near to them. No one dared draw near them. I recognized the yogi we had irritated at the Haidekan ashram when we didn't obey his order to take off our shoes and worship Babaji.
Nevertheless, I walked towards them and sat next to them on the grass. I struck up a conversation with one of the more familiar and likable members of the group, a fellow who was always stark naked wherever he went and carried around a yellow fabric to spread out on the ground whenever he wanted to lay down. He told me his story. He was a Dutchman from Amsterdam who didn't at all care for life in Europe. So in his 20s, he decided to go and live in the tropical islands of Fiji. On his way to Fiji, he passed through India, where he met Babaji at the Haidekan Ashram. Until that point, he had had no connection with yoga or religion. When he found himself face to face with Babaji, he told me Babaji made him feel tiny, as though he were merely two inches tall, and Babaji a colossal mountain. Babaji told him in a commanding voice, You will start a business. I will start a business, he answered, his voice betraying shock and fear. Yes, Babaji responded, you will. Now go. Leaving the ashram, the Dutchman, the Dutchman made his first business agreement. Within three years, this insignificant, impoverished, drug-using hippie became an international businessman who used a jet for his continual business trips, making about a million dollars a year in profits. Of course, he continued, I did all these things through Babaji's power. Later, Babaji told me to stay with him, and so I abandoned everything and began to practice yoga. At this point, I directed the conversation to my own concerns and told him, I don't like to work. Then don't work, he responded. What do you want, a quiet life? No, I want to learn what's going on in this world. It's all an incomprehensible mystery to me. I don't understand anything. I've been with him three years, and I still don't understand anything, he replied. I don't know who I am or where I'm going. I don't know what I should do in this world. I don't know what the significance is of events or of my own actions. Do you do things you don't want to do? No, I'm free and do whatever I want. At this point, the others called for him, and he got up to leave. I asked where he was going, and he told me that he was going to have a smoke. I asked him if I could come along too, and he invited me. While they were preparing the chillum, I told them, I get frightened when I'm in front of Babaji. Don't be afraid, one of them answered. Another man smiled and said, don't be afraid to be afraid. He then lit the chillum and inhaled deeply for an amazing length of time. I don't know what his lung capacity was, but when he let out his breath, the entire room filled with smoke. The others followed suit with the same results. When my turn came, I tried to make a dignified attempt, sucking in as much as I could, but I was rather pathetic in comparison. In spite of that, it made me so dizzy that I felt as though I were about to faint. The following times, I only pretended to participate. The blend was just too strong for me. 
I felt unsteady as I went out into the, man into the mansion's inner courtyard. About 300 people attending various events were present, including two or three sadhus, or Indian ascetic hermits. There was a, there was a goodly number of Europeans as well, including a blonde girl in traditional Indian dress that I had met in New Delhi. The poor girl thought she was Babaji's wife and tried to behave accordingly. No one made fun of her, but they were they also weren't paying any attention to her. I felt sorry for her because she seemed so ridiculous. It seemed to me as though she had gone off the deep end. During all these years in India, she only rarely got to play the role that was the heart of her fantasy world. In reality, she was just another ornament in Babaji's court. Was there no one who tried to bring her to her senses and open her eyes? Indeed, from what I learned from a friend of hers in New Delhi, the guru only encouraged her behavior. Her behavior. Perhaps he had had relations with her and thus led her to believe that she was his wife. All the Indians seemed to look up towards the fair-headed race that was once their country's master with awe, jealousy, and hatred. Perhaps Babaji was not an exception. I remember similar stories told by other girls who had been abused by gurus. Those with whom I had smoked had taken up their places behind Babaji, as though they were his bodyguards and everyone else started to file past him in order to worship him and kiss his feet. His disposition would change with each, with each person. Sometimes he would be harsh, sometimes he would be kindly, sometimes he would joke with the person. The fellow who originally gave me the address wouldn't leave me alone, insisting that I also go in front of Babaji. I was afraid and wanted to put it off. At the same time, I felt bad about putting him in a difficult situation. So I went forward. The moment I stood in front of Babaji, he grew fierce, and I was literally paralyzed by fear. With my mind, I barely managed to whisper, Help! And immediately he softened and asked me, who brought you here? You did, I answered, ignor ignoring all of those who were but instruments of his will. Where have you come from? Munger, or Munger. He motioned for me to move along and I gladly distanced myself from the strain and fear of being in his presence. I tried to determine what I found so terrifying, asking myself why I felt such anxiety and fear. Was it the strange look in his eyes or his great power? Father Paisios also had great power and his eyes at times had an otherworldliness about them, but I was never frightened around him. On the contrary, I felt quite safe. 
It was now it was now time for the meal, so we sat down on the ground in rows, and each received a large leaf, about a foot long, that held potatoes, greens, and some spicy boiled rice. The man who had given me the address kindly sat next to me, and told me that he had opened up a small business. Which made him wealthy by Indian standards, and offered prospects of even greater wealth, as he was still in the beginning stages. The guru, it seemed, distributed wealth to at least some of his followers, such as this man, such as this man and the eminent book publisher, who had opened up his his home to us. This publisher and his family had vacated their rooms for the guru and his disciples. The expenses for such hospitality must have been enormous, since all the guests stayed in his mansion for about four or five days until Babaji went elsewhere. Everyone, pre everyone present had to be fed and given a place to sleep. The family's behavior in general made it clear that they recognized. That their wealth came from the guru, as one of his disciples put it, naturally everything they built is through his power. Now it was the guru's turn to receive some benefit from the transaction. The worship of idols. After everyone had finished the meal, the sacrifice began. <clears throat> the sacrifice began. In the courtyard was a permanent altar where they lit the fires for sacrifices. They brought pans piled high with some sort of mixture that included plenty of ghee. Babaji offered the sacrifice with the help of his closest disciples, while the master of the house stood nearby. Babaji was chanting various hymns to the gods, and every so often he would take a large spoonful of ghee and throw it on the fire, filling the air with the smell of burning butter. Everyone followed the two-hour ritual with piety, though the master of the house had a strange look on his face, as though he were trying to preserve his wounded pride. After the sacrifice. Was complete. The Dutch yogi took ashes from the blackened spoon that they had used in the ritual and placed a dot between the eyebrows of the believers. I was so impressed by the rite that I went forward for him to put a dot on my forehead on my forehead as well. It never occurred to me to ask to whom the sacrifice had been offered. Once again. The influence of Christianity made it difficult for me to come to terms with the fact of real polytheism and idol worship, and having smoked the charas, and having smoked the charas hadn't helped either. Afterwards, I could see the guru moving about the crowd with ease, but no one approached him or crossed his path. I lost track of him when he went towards the. I lost track of him when he went towards the western side of the buildings. In the meantime, the people were forming a line, 
I thought they would pass in front of him as on, as on previous occasions, and since I was ready to leave the mansion, I got in line as well. I didn't intend to worship him like they urged me to, but simply to greet him, a polite gesture in response to his hospitality. It was a long line, and I couldn't see what was happening at the front. As I drew closer to my surprise, I saw Babaji emerging from behind some trees. Before I could ask myself whom it was the crowd was actually greeting, I found myself in a temple with about 22-foot-tall statues guarded by stern Brahmins keeping an eye on those in line. Babaji climbed up a tree to watch us. Three people in front of me worshipped the idols, left money, and went their way. At this point, I was ashamed to get out of the line and insult them. There was no way to leave discreetly, so I went forward and worshipped the idols, although inwardly I prayed to Christ. Thus did I transgress the commandment I had heard so clearly when I ascended the steps of Babaji's ashram. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Without realizing it, I had spent the entire day participating in the Hindu worship of idols. By following a ritual sacrifice made as an offering to them. Unfortunately, at the time, I didn't think about the Christian martyrs who lost their possessions, their loved ones, and their very lives in the midst of terrible tortures by idolaters. In order to avoid casting a mere handful of incense into a fire in honor of their idols. If I had thought about this at the time, if I hadn't been under the influence of the charas I smoked, if I hadn't allowed myself to be swayed by my warm feelings for the Dutch former hippie, if I hadn't let the demands or of etiquette trick me into getting into line, into the line, perhaps I would not have ended up doing what I never intended to do. I feel you, man. I really feel you, bro. <laughs> I really feel you. I really understand. The next section, uh, the next section is called Demon possession uh, but i'm running out of time so i will pick it up on the next episode thank you so much for listening god bless you and good night <laughs>